when your ego is tied to what you do, you don't listen very well because your human nature is to defend, right? Like I designed this pen, isn't it great? And if you were to say, Laura, I think the pen could be better. I'm going to say, oh my gosh, did you not see my great pen? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, talk to the hand, not the face. But if I'm passionate about writing and you were to tell me how to improve my pen, I'm all ears. So I think when you're, regardless of what you do as a career, the size of the organization you're in, whether you're earlier in your career or later in your career, always make sure that what you're passionate about, where your ego is, is in the impact you're having, not what you're doing. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a co-chair at Quantibos, and our guest today is Lara Hodgson. Lara is co-author with Stacey Abrams of Level Up, Rise Above the Hidden Forces Holding Your Business Back. She is also president and CEO of Now Corporation and serves as an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School. Welcome, Lara. Thank you. There's no question you're an entrepreneur. And this book really focuses for all of our listeners who are entrepreneurs on important lessons of entrepreneurship. But it's more than that. And it's a piece of the more than that that I'm asking us to focus on today, which is the lessons that anyone inside of an organization, or as you just said, anyone in life really could benefit from. Each of your chapters ends with what you call level up lessons. And I really want to start with something you say at the end of chapter one. Diverse thinking leads to fresh ideas. Seek it out. Look at your team. If everyone looks alike, speaks alike, thinks alike, and believes the same things as you, your team is not diverse. Differences can be your superpower. Stay different. What is the value of difference? It slows things down, doesn't it? Absolutely. But all progress happens in that friction. And I think, you know, it's interesting. People will often come up to me and say, oh, you have a woman-owned business. You must be a diverse business. And my response is always, there are lots of women-owned businesses that are not diverse. Because if I had an entire company of women or entire team of minorities, that's not any more diverse than an entire team of white men. And so I think it's natural for us to want to surround ourselves with people that are like us because it's very comfortable. And most of us don't like friction. We like comfort. We seek it out at every chance we get. But progress never happens when you're comfortable. And so you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable and you have to surround yourself with people who see a problem from another perspective. To me, 
each of us is born and developed throughout our lives lenses, right? Those lenses are conditioned by our own unique experiences. And if I'm looking at a problem by myself, at best, I have a 180 degree view, at best. But if I can bring other people into the fold who have completely different lenses, I now get the chance to look at the problem from a 360 degree view. And that's, it's not easy, believe me. I mean, most people, when you hear something that you don't agree with, your initial reaction is to judge it and to sort of judge its validity. As opposed to Stacy and I've always had a rule, which is be curious first and critical second. Because if you can take just a minute and be curious about something that comes from a source you don't agree with or that at first blush is not the way you see things, if you can take just a moment and be curious about it and find one thing that's right, that's where your opportunity is. That's where all innovation comes from. Lara, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Based on that, there are so many different points that you've hit that you talk about in the book. Clearly, you and Stacy are different. And clearly, in your relationship, there was friction. And yet, you managed through that. Building that relationship is so important. And at one point in the book, you were talking about a car ride where you had some friction. And I'm going to read you what you wrote. We learned that in order to be successful, we had to be intentional about confronting challenges head on, even when it would hurt to do so. And then you talk about putting your rules of engagement down in writing. I'm not sure I've ever heard a business leader talk about rules of engagement. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting People often ask us how we've been business partners for almost two decades through failures and successes when we're so, you know, how we overcame that challenge of being different. And the interesting thing is we don't view it as a challenge. We truly view it as our superpower. But the car ride you're talking about, you know, we came out of this meeting. I was kind of the lead presenter. So I was talking, talking, talking. We got the deal. So in my mind, it was a huge success. I was so excited. Stacy, on the other hand, was unusually quiet. And I just kept saying, is something wrong? And she was like, no. But then she'd be quiet again. And finally, she said, yes. I don't know if you noticed, but no one in that room would ever direct a question at me. And I mean, I was crushed because I didn't notice. And I had to be honest about that. I was so busy trying to sell this deal that I didn't notice that. And it moved me to tears. Like I felt so guilty. I felt so bad. Why did I not notice this? And it was interesting because Stacy said, you know, I almost didn't tell you because I was just mad that you hadn't noticed. But then I thought to myself, why should she notice? Because she was playing her role. Like she was doing her thing. And if I don't say something, then that's on me that she didn't notice and she won't notice in the future. And so, you know, we had this cab ride where we just talked about not blaming or judging or why didn't you notice or why do you think I should have noticed? We immediately went to the solution, right? So, okay, in the next meeting or in a meeting a month from now, what would we do differently to not come out of the meeting with this same situation? And 
I think it's so important when you're working with people who are different from you, you have to force yourself to stay focused on the solution, focused on the goal. Because if everyone is focused on the goal or the solution that's bigger than any one of the individuals, then the differences are a positive. But the minute you lose focus on the goal and you start focusing on what one person said versus the other, all of a sudden the differences flip to weaknesses. And there's an analogy I like to use. If you happen to be sitting by a window, assuming the window is clean, and you were to look out the window at something in the distance, maybe a tree, and that tree is your goal. If you stay focused on it, you actually don't see the glass because you're laser focused on the goal. But the minute I tell you there's a piece of glass there and you refocus your eye on the glass, the tree is blurry, right? Because now you're looking at the glass. And that's the way life is. If we're working towards a goal and we stay focused on it, all the obstacles fall out if you stay focused. It's when you lose focus and you start focusing on things that don't matter that you start to become using your differences as a weakness. I really like that analogy of the tree. It brought to mind, I'm a photographer and use one of those photographer cameras uh, I don't do a lot of photography with my phone. I use one of those cameras where I can adjust the focal length. Right. And as I adjust the focal length, more or less of what I can see is in focus. And it becomes a very intentional practice to broaden that focus so that you have a clearer picture, if you will, of what's happening in the environment around you or narrowing that focus to this is the goal that I want to focus on. You said something else that triggered another one of your lessons um, in the book, which is, again, we're picking up on the value of that diversity. Um, you have a chapter, it's not what you know, it's what you notice. And in that chapter, you write, we are comfortable being the least knowledgeable people in the room because our lack of knowledge enabled us to notice things that experts would overlook. I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant insight. I coach a lot of leaders, a lot of business leaders, and even one who was very concerned when he got transferred within his the organization he worked for. He had been working in the same division working his way up for, for many years. And he came into a coaching session and he said, I don't know what to do. I'm no longer the smartest person in the room. And he saw that as a detriment. And you're saying, go for it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's so interesting because if you think about all innovation, it never comes from what you know. I mean, if it did, then Uber would have been started by a cab driver or GoPro would have been started by a video expert, but they weren't, right? GoPro was started by a surfer and Uber was started by someone completely outside the industry. That's why innovation always comes from the demand side of the problem, not the supply side. But I'll tell you one way I put that in practice with my company, and it's fascinating. When a new employee joins us, your initial reaction is to start off with training right? To sort of take those first couple weeks and teach them how you do everything. And we don't do that. 
And at first, it kind of throws people because they're like, well, wait a minute, aren't you going to show me how you solve these things? And my answer is always no. For the first two weeks, I don't want to teach you anything. I actually want you to teach me what you see. What do you notice? What's working well? Where do you see friction? Where do you see frustration? Where do you see client experiences that are positive or negative? Because for two weeks, you have a gift that I don't have and can never get, which is a fresh set of eyes. And the minute you lose it, you can never get it back. And so I always challenge our new employees for the first two weeks, don't seek to be told how we do it today. Watch what we're doing and point out the things that you see that we could be doing better or the things that we're doing that are really received well. And it's so funny because most companies don't do that. Most companies want you to be doing it the company way as soon as possible. And I think that's unfortunate because you hire diverse mindsets and then you immediately train the diversity of thought right out of them. It's like we scripted this, Lara. (laughs) Um, Doing that takes a lot of trust. And patience in the people you hire. And so you have a chapter, Hire Patients, Hire Patiently. I I have a good colleague who works with actually a lot of entrepreneurial companies. And the way he puts it is hire slow, fire fast. Really take the time to get the right people for the job. And if you don't get the right people for the job, because no matter how careful we are, we don't always get it right, don't keep them around. Right. Tell us more about hire patients, hire patiently. Yeah. So, you know, I think when you're in any type of fast growth environment, whether that's a startup and you're an entrepreneur or whether you're in a larger company, but you're working on a project that's got aggressive goals or aggressive timeframes, we all know what it feels like to be resource constrained. Right. And then and all of a sudden you need more help. And when you start to interview people, I think we naturally are drawn to people that are very much like us, right? We identify with their stories, their experiences make sense to us. Um, And so we inherently think, what a good fit. But what we mean by hire patiently is to force yourself to not make that first decision And instead, look at people that have backgrounds complete, so different from yours, you don't understand them. And you need it to be explained to you, right? I never played that activity. I never was involved in that type of of an organization. Explain it to me. Um, Because that's the richness of getting people in. And it forces you to see their mindset instead of just their skill set. I always say, I can teach you to do anything I want you to do. We're not doing brain surgery, But I can't teach you a mindset. I can't teach you how to approach, how to react if you approach a challenge that you didn't foresee. So patience means even though you know you need help and you really kind of want that first warm body that seems a lot like you, we all like to see ourselves, don't do it. Like resist it for a minute and find somebody to compare that's completely different. And then when we talk about hiring patience, I think there's a lot of times that Stacey and I have attracted highly talented people just because of our enthusiasm. 
And and that's not unique to us. That's true of most every entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are optimists, right? Cynics don't start companies. Um, but even within large organizations, there are people you know who just their energy and their personality attract teammates. And early on, we thought that was a great thing because we would start something and we just sort of attract, we were like the Pied Piper. People just wanted to join and these were talented people with great resumes. And so we thought, my gosh, this can't be easier, right? Like you just attract people every day. But they, we weren't, not only were we not being patient, we were bringing in people that were just so excited to be on the team. They didn't have patience either. And so they would join the team and they were going 50 miles an hour and they wanted to do X, Y, Z. And we weren't ready for that. We we're like, whoa, time out. Like we've got to get this done first. So you know, I think it goes back to making sure that both you and the people you're hiring have similar mindsets, similar definitions of success and similar sort of um, cadence to their behavior. Many years ago, I was director of annual giving at the University of Minnesota. The university had literally tens of thousands of employees, and I had to hire a new executive assistant. At some point, the vice president for human resources called me up. He said, you have to hire somebody. I've sent you 28 people. They all meet the typing requirements. They all know how to answer the phone. And I said, I'll hire someone I find when I find the right someone. Yeah. She only lasted a year because she was so good that she actually applied for an entry-level professional position. That's a separate story because... Um, despite a national search recommending her, my boss told me we don't promote clerical people into professional positions, and she quit, and I testified against my boss, and so forth and wow. so on. But um, the point is, she had the mindset. She had never worked professionally. She had a son with learning disabilities, and she had volunteered in special schools and so forth to get her son the education he needed, but she had the mindset. And she developed the skills. And yeah. again, just as a sidebar, this literally was in 1981. And wow. I just visited her a few weeks ago in Minneapolis. We're still good friends. Oh, that's amazing. Your network is your net worth. We do a lot of group coaching. And whether we are coaching in, in one of our clients, it's people who have been promoted from hourly positions into salaried positions based on competence and skill rather than uh, educational degrees and so forth, right up to the executive suite. Um, one of the most important things that we are often coaching people on is building your network. Some people say, I don't want to play politics and you know, isn't that dirty pool and, and those kinds of things. But the reality is your network, people hire people, people promote people, and it's your network that introduces you into those opportunities. Yeah, and I, you know, I view a network, I always love words that we use so much nobody thinks about what they mean. I view a network as a living organism. And every day my network is like this amoeba, right? Like there's people coming in of it, inside, et cetera. I remember when Stacy and I started our first business and we were trying to raise a little bit of money to get the molds made for Nourish. 
And somebody said to us, well, why don't you just raise money from friends and family? And we both sort of laughed like you obviously don't know our friends and our family because they're not independently wealthy people that are just walking around looking to make investments in people. Um, but that's an interesting learning because today most people would say that Stacy and I have incredibly well-developed networks, but we weren't born with them. And we weren't handed them because of who our parents were or, you know, the community we lived in or some club that we went to or anything like that. I build my network every day by talking to people. And, and I don't think building a network is playing politics. If it is, your network's going to be incredibly weak because it's got to be authentic or it doesn't stick together. So my son will tell you, I have an 18-year-old son, and he will quickly tell you that I talk to anyone. If you are bagging my groceries, I am talking to you. I will find out where you go to school. I'll find out what you're studying. What is it you're trying to do? If you sit next to me on an airplane, I hope you didn't want to read a book. You're going to talk to me and I'm going to find out everything about you. But it's not, you know, it's authentic, right? I'm authentically curious about people. I find people fascinating. And here's the thing that most people do wrong when they're building a network and why it becomes politics. When you walk into any type of event and there's a room full of people and you start to meet people and you see the name tag that they have on, if you immediately determine whether someone adds value to your network or not, you're doing it wrong. And I know I see people like that, right? They walk around the events and they're like, oh, you're not a CEO. I don't need to talk to you. Oh, you're not this level person. I don't need to talk to you. If you are judging a person's value to your network when you first meet them, you're not building a network. You're politicking. But if you truly meet people, the person bagging my groceries is just as valuable to my network as the CEO that I meet at a networking event. Because as you mentioned, we all know people, right? It might be someone on my son's little league team that has a parent that happens to be in that industry. Stop judging and just take people for who they are, learn about them, and you'll be fascinated. What is it? Kevin Bacon's seven degrees of separation? I think the biggest mistake people make is they're too judgmental up front and they determine your value in the network before they let you in. I genuinely meet people and you'd be amazed. Like, I'll give you a great example. My son was playing Little League Lacrosse. I was at a practice picking him up. And if you've ever seen little kids try to get out of lacrosse gear, it's like a salmon caught in a net. And there was a dad helping another little boy do the same thing. He had a golf shirt on that said Georgia Tech. And I said, oh, I love your Georgia Tech shirt. Now, we're in Atlanta, Georgia. A Georgia Tech shirt is not unique. They're everywhere. But I said, I like your shirt. And he said, oh, I'm doing an evening program there. I said, oh, that's interesting. I went there years ago. I've taught a course there. What are you studying? Turns out he works with credit unions and he's in the bond, the municipal bond market. I said, I'm interested in doing a bond. And a year later, we created the most innovative bond structure that had ever been created solely because of a man I met on a lacrosse field, not at a networking event. Nobody had a tie on. A man you met at a lacrosse field wearing a Georgia Tech shirt. That's right. You don't know what you don't know, and you said this about yourself, being curious. Focus on finding the right questions over finding answers. That is such, you know, it's 
at the heart of what we do as coaches. We come in with curiosity. Basically, I tell every one of my clients two things when we start. One is around confidentiality. The second is the one thing I don't bring is answers. Yeah. I bring questions. And if I can find the right questions, you'll find the answers that you need. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I'm trained as an aerospace engineer. So saying that the question's more important than the answer is like a heresy to engineers. And when I graduated with my engineering degree and then I went to business school, I think that was a real adjustment for me because I was so focused on finding the right answer. And the reality is innovation is never the first right answer. It's the 10th right answer. But most of us, when we get to an answer, we stop right? Oh, I got an answer. And we stop thinking. But innovation is when you push past the first answer to the second answer to the 10th answer. That's where innovation comes from. And I remember seeing an interview with Dr. Jonas Salk, who invented the vaccine for polio. And the comment he made is that the answer to every problem we will ever face already exists. He said, you don't invent the answer, you reveal the answer. And what he meant by that was he didn't invent the vaccine to polio. He discovered it through, through science, through nature, through, you know, experimentation. And I think as people, when we're struggling with something and someone says, what do you do? And you say, I'm trying to find the answer. You don't say I'm trying to create the answer. You say I'm trying to find it. And so I do think this idea of looking past the first answer and don't settle for the first answer, right? Look for another one, another one, another one um, is really where most innovation comes from. We're going to have to wrap it up here, Lara. Any last key messages for our listeners? You know, I think one of the most important things that I learned kind of midway through my career, when I was younger, people would always say, do what you're passionate about. And, and I think that was meant to be a motivational comment, but it stressed me out, quite frankly, because I didn't know what I was passionate about. Not that I didn't have anything. I had a lot of things. There's a lot of things I can be passionate about. But what I learned midway through my career is that that was bad advice, that you don't have to do what you're passionate about. You have to do the so what that you're passionate about. And what I mean by that is the what you do could change but the impact is what you should be passionate about. So when I think about my company with Now Account, I am passionate about the fact that our clients are able to grow and create jobs and create economic prosperity. What we do every day, you could change that tomorrow and I don't care. And I think what happens is when you become too, when your ego is tied to what you do, you don't listen very well. Because your human nature is to defend, right? Like, I designed this pen, isn't it great? And if you were to say, Laura, I think the pen could be better, I'm going to say, oh my gosh, did you not see my great pen? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, talk to the hand, not the face. But if I'm passionate about writing and you were to tell me how to improve my pen, I'm all ears. So I think when you're, regardless of what you do as a career, the size of the organization you're in, whether you're earlier in your career or later in your career, always make sure that what you're passionate about, where your ego is, is in the impact you're having, not what you're doing. 
I think that's such great advice, Lara, and it brings to mind, and, and then we'll wrap this up. It took me a long time to discover that what I'm passionate about is helping people through change. And I've been a consultant, I've been a line officer, I've been a coach, I've, I've, I've taught, I've you know, written, I've given TEDx talks and, and so forth. It's all different ways of doing what I'm helping. Yeah, you were circling it. You were circling it. <laughs> I'm circling, but I'm different modalities for yeah. doing that work that helps people find their success. Lara Hodgson, author, CEO, Level Up. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you.